Welcome to Planet Geo, the podcast where we talk about our amazing planet, how it works, and why it matters to you. You like it when I start recording, then I start doing this. Yeah. So that's the, what I'll do. It's the best. Hey, Jesse Remink. Hey, Christopher <laughs> Boys. Oh, he's got the like sexy that? voice on today. Wow. Thank you for calling. What can I do for you? <laughs> that is a voice for radio right there. <laughs> I got the face to go along with it. I'm good. Oh, man. Let's go. Let's go, Chris. You've got an interesting shirt on today. All I can see is beards. It's yeah. in the top half. A t-shirt. What, what's going on there? What Here, do we got? Let me, let me sit up beards. a little bit straighter. And you see. Oh, Beards Brewery. Beards oh, brewery. it's a brewery. Nice. With a hop leaf, with a hop cone coming down as the beard. You know, and it kind of like, it fits my beard, right? Because it's kind of cone shaped, you know, and I got that triangular look going on. You really do. I was going to mention it. Your beard is looking particularly <laughs> flush today. <laughs> the top of your head. Less so, but yeah. the you know the bottom part of your face is pretty flush with hair. Yeah, I know, I I know, I I do need to. I, it's getting a little out of control. I got to take care of it. It's looking good though. I you know yeah. it's good. Yeah, thanks. I'm I'm proud to be doing this podcast with well, you. You know, you I think if you would try to grow facial hair, it would look you'd look like a Teen Wolf. I think. Yeah, you know, you'd splotchy. You it's know? totally Teen Wolf. I cannot grow facial hair for. For shit. I mean, it looks real bad. <laughs> One time I grew, right. you know, Tess was like, oh, you know, don't clean shave because a little bit of, uh, you know, gruff is it's good. It's man style. But then she's like, but you, you have to keep it trimmed. <laughs> like you have to yeah. keep it really tight because it looks yeah. pretty grim. <laughs> However, nobody can grow a disgusting neared like you. That's true. Oh and my gosh. You can grow a neared like none other. Yep. Award winning, I think. It is. Award winning. It is. Hey, let's uh let's get into this. You ready? Let's do it, man. This is right. I am excited. Are you excited? I'm always excited. So that's <laughs> kind of a dumb true. question. So <laughs> Fair point. Fair point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm ready to go. Well heck yeah. This was your idea. Well, yeah. In part because when did you guys buy your house that you're living in now? Have you been there uh, a decade? Almost. Almost ten years. Yep. Okay. Yep. So Tess and I just bought a house in uh, in Pennsylvania, and because of the crazy housing market, we kind of had to waive inspections. I mean, we looked at the house and walked through it, and it looked in pretty good shape, so we were a little bit comfortable waiving inspections, but radon is something that often gets inspected if you don't have a radon system in your house, which ours actually has. So, And, and we're going to talk, it's like fundamentally linked to geoscience. Wait a what? You have a radon system? What does that mean? Like what? Do, what well, do it's mean? just like a uh, the radon pipes that that sort of vent underneath of the the floor. So it's just a, a vent system basically that gets rid of radon. Do I have one of those? You might. I don't know. Some some houses do. Some get installed. They're relatively simple. But we'll get to that. Like how to to sort of get rid of them. And I can talk about what mine actually look like in the in the. the I house feel like that's have. something but, I should know, but I I really have no idea. Well. So we're going to talk about radon because this is like geoscience. We get to cover a lot of cool geoscience stuff here with yeah, radon. Absolutely. And, you know, it is important. That I, there there are billboards. You see, like, have you had your home tested? And there's a phone number that you can call and have people come out and do it. I've seen those before. And one of the main reasons is because it is radioactive and it, radon is a gas. And so it is, isn't it? I think this is true. It's the the second leading cause of lung cancer behind smoking. 
Exactly. If you're a non-smoker, this is the number one cause of lung cancer in, in the U.S. at least. Well, so, hold on. I think uh, let's uh, let's give a little bit of a prelude of what we're going to do. So we kind of have this chunked up into three sections. We need to get into radioactive decay and how that works. We've touched on it before in previous episodes. We're going to do it again in this context. So that's the first chunk. Then we're going to talk about the geology of radon and how it moves and how all that happens. And then the last section today is going to be, all right, well, it's in your house. Now what? What do you do? And Chris, this is just like, ah, this is just such a cool story. And so directly relevant, like, you know, it's in our houses, you can get your radon problem in your house fixed for a relatively inexpensive amount, you know, up to a thousand, maybe, maybe 1300 bucks or something like that. It's not that expensive, but it's just such a cool story. It's a cool intersection between geology, chemistry, groundwater, rocks, and our everyday lives. It's just really, really interesting, I think. So, um, so, you know, you laid it out perfectly. We're going to work through those three things and, and get to the point of the story. Cause it's really cool one. I agree with you a hundred percent. It's an awesome story. Um, and I, to me personally, I love intersections. I love it when science comes together where you have all these multi-disciplines. I, I think that's actually, it's one of the most attractive things to me about geology is it involves all kinds of intersections all the time. But this story, we have to get into some technical stuff. We have to get into some numbers and like, just, just, I'm just telling the listener, bear with us, please. Cause it does go somewhere in a cool place and we have to do this before we get to that. And that's worth it. It's true. And we are going to cover some numbers and, uh, I love the geochemistry side. We're going to get a little bit <laughs> into the weeds of the geochemistry, which is fun, but you're right. It, you got to bear with it. You know, but the reason why you and I are having this discussion is we originally recorded it and my wife listened to it. We're listening back to this episode, my wife and I, and she, <laughs> she fell asleep and I'm like, <laughs> never a good sign. What the hell, Jen? What are you, what are you doing? And she's like, well, you kind of lost me with all the numbers. I'm not really that sciencey. And you know, she's, she's getting, yeah, she's doing her thing. And <laughs> I'm like, but this is a really like, this is why this is important. And I kind of explained it to her, she's like, well, why don't you just lead with that? That would have been like, <laughs> do that, you know? So <laughs> here we are, you and I sitting here thinking, wait a minute, this is, I think a really good episode. And we just don't want to lose people on the front end because we got to cover some science stuff, but it is a science podcast, right? That's right. So Jenny, don't fall asleep. If you're like Jenny, <laughs> don't fall asleep, stick with us. We'll get there. It, it, we'll get to the end of the story. And it's just a really, really cool tale. We have to get into the weeds of chemistry to start out with. That's right. You get your head out of your Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> so radon is an element and its chemical symbol is RN. That's, you know, the, the periodic table has all these symbols. RN is radon and it's a noble gas. What does that mean? Explain that real quick. Yeah, noble gases, you know, they're on the far right side of the periodic table. They have a full electron shell, an outer electron shell. So they don't bond with anything really. So they like to exist in the gas state. Right. They're very stable. When something is a noble gas, it's very non-reactive and it's very stable. Now we say that from the standpoint of a full, like, you know, all of its energy levels are full of electrons. However, we're going to go into now, well, why is it radioactive then if it's stable? Now we got to talk about inside the nucleus. So we're really kind of talking about two different things. Yeah, that's Does a that great sense? point, Chris. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. Great point. So the electrons in the outer outer shells, that determines chemistry, chemical reactivity. We're talking about 
the nuclear physics and the in what happens in the nucleus is whether it breaks down or not. And radon yeah. is sorry. Nuclear chemistry is what you're talking about when you dive into like radioactive decay. So these are changes that happen inside the nucleus. And so let's get into real quick the what makes certain because they're not all elements are radioactive, only certain ones that you know you look at your parent table and only a few of them are radioactive. And what all that means is that the nucleus of that atom is unstable. And so it's it's gonna spontaneously change to be it's gonna do something to become more stable. Not necessarily like stable, just more stable than it was. That's right. And the way to think about this, a good analogy is, okay, primer, the nucleus of an atom is the really compact thing in the center that holds all the mass. It has protons and neutrons in it. Those protons and neutrons, you can kind of think of these things as they're vibrating. They're little springs. All of them are kind of bound to each other and they're all kind of vibrating, right? So they're kind of shifting around. You have this mass of 222 protons and neutrons. They're all vibrating together. Now, Every once in a while, at a random instant, half of them will vibrate in one direction to the right, the other half will vibrate to the left, and the atom will kind of split apart. That's just a, an example of sort of how this happens. These things are a vibrating mass, and randomly, some of them will break off because they all vibrated in one direction, and, sh and then they, they sort of lose stability. So that's kind of how this happens, and it's a, sort of a very fast process that is losing mass from the nucleus. So we are creating two particles from one bigger one. So what I'd like to do, I think, before we get into like how this actually happens, let's talk a little bit about the way that radioactive decay happens, the, you know, what happens in the nucleus. You know, let's keep this as, as simple as we can, but there are three basic modes of decay. And we say that decay, we, we're just talking about how the nucleus is going to change. And when that happens, it's, it's called decay. The first one, I think it's the most common in terms of going to radon anyway, is called alpha decay. So what this involves is you have an atom that is unstable and it changes by emitting an alpha particle. We call that alpha decay. And an alpha particle is just simply, it's, it's one particle that is made up of two protons and two neutrons, which is essentially the nucleus of a helium atom. Like if you take then, let's say uranium-238, when we call it uranium-238, it's atomic number 92, but it has a mass of 238. And the rest of the mass, so you have 92 protons, the rest of it is made up of neutrons, okay? Yeah. If you take uranium-238, it's an unstable atom and it spontaneously just changes. It emits that particle, two protons and two neutrons, a helium atom. And so the new particle is going to have a mass minus what it lost. And it lost two protons and two neutrons, which means it's lost a mass of four units, four mass units. Okay. And now you have 90 protons, which is the identity of the element. And so now what you have, instead of uranium, you have thorium 234. So we started with uranium-238, now we have thorium-234, and that's also going to be radioactive, it's unstable, and it will change too. 
Uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, this is uh, this is the key point, right? Is that these things are breaking down. And actually, the interesting thing about radon is it is not only itself radioactive, meaning it is unstable and it breaks down, and that's why it's damaging to us, but it also is the product of decay. So you talked about 238 uranium. Actually, 238 uranium, it starts to decay. And once it starts that process, once it kicks out a helium atom and becomes 234 thorium, it goes under this long chain of decay. It decays down for through a whole bunch of different elements all the way till it gets to 206 lead. In radon, the one that we most often worry about is 222 radon. It kind of sits right in the middle of that process. It is one, two, three, four, five, six steps from uranium to radon, and then another about 10 or 12 steps to get to lead at the end. So not only is radon radioactive, but it also is radiogenic. It is produced by radioactive decay, which is a really important part about the geology of it, which we'll get. That's right. The other common type of decay is called beta decay. And what beta decay is, is when the nucleus of an atom emits a very high energy electron. Okay. Now, electrons essentially have no mass. I mean, it's ridiculously small. So the mass of the new isotope, what we call it the daughter isotope, that mass is going to be the same, but I lost an electron. Okay. Now this is something that really is interesting to me, Jesse, because with my students and I'm sure you, I I bet you, I bet you money. You'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I bet you your students, it doesn't occur to them. Wait a second. Beta decay. We teach this. They know about it. They know, but they learn about it in chemistry class, right? But they hardly ever ask the question, wait a second, there aren't any electrons in the nucleus. So how does this (laughs) happen? Where does the electron come from? Yeah, (laughs) that's right. Exactly. (laughs) So where does it come from, Chris? Where does the electron come from? Yeah. If you think about then what a neutron is, a neutron is a neutral particle. So it has no charge and it has a mass of one. Well, if you take a proton and an electron together and, you know, just mash them together, you have something that has no charge and it has a mass of one. So a neutron is made up of those two subatomic particles. So when beta decay happens, think about this neutron vibrating and all of a sudden just kicks out this electron. The proton stays right? So your atomic number will go up by one because now I have a proton that used to be a neutron and I lost no mass. So that's how beta decay happens. And this is confusing when you're first getting exposed to this kind of thing, because they're like, wait a second, the atomic number goes up, but I lost something, you know? Yeah. It's, it's very confusing. It's very confusing in this way, but it's not if you understand what a neutron is. And so there are two types of decay. Like you said, these are the dominant ones. There's a few other ones which are not important for most Electron capture things. and yeah. Yeah, they're not super important. But both of these modes of decay occur from the path from uranium down to lead. And as we said, there's like 16 or 18 steps in that process. So both of these are occurring in this way. And radon sits right in the middle of it. So ultimately, Chris, what is the source of radon that makes it maybe into your basement. Like, where is that coming from? Ultimately, I'm so glad you asked this question. (laughs) (laughs) Ultimately, it comes from uranium-238. That is the source of radon-222. So can I do this, Jesse? Just, Just bear with me a minute. 
Oh man. Okay. Oh, I, I'm, I feel like I'm always bearing with you, you know, no, I know. so I know. I, I, I'll do it for one more minute and then okay. we're done. But, but hold on before we do this though, we have to also refresh one thing too. What is the half-life? Okay. Oh yeah. Each radioactive element has its own half-life. And all that means is the half-life is the time it takes for half of the atoms that are present to decay. Let me try the analogy. Let me see if I get your analogy right because it's a great one. It's the sh- is this the shoebox analogy? Is this where you're going to go? Yep. Okay, yep. I, I used it in class the other day and I want to make sure I get <laughs> it right here. So basically you take, let me go with it. You take your shoebox, right? Chris, Chris Bolice is grabbing his shoebox. Maybe he's got some new, you know, ASICs that he's about to rock out in the retirement I'm, home. I'm an old man and- now. I've gone to Hoka. <laughs> that's great that's really good Uh, that's a good visual right there so you take your hoka shoebox you fill it up with a whole bunch of pennies and you shake it for uh, a known amount of pennies put a hundred pennies in it or put 50 in it put whatever it's got to be a known amount yep let's do a hundred i like a hundred that's nice and even shake it up for five shakes five or maybe five seconds ten seconds then you open it up And you take out all the pennies that have tails facing up. That's what I always would go with, with the heads or tails thing. I'd always go with tails. So we're going to take out the tails. How many are going to be left? Half. Round about 50, right? Okay. Is that the analogy? That's one half-life. And then we put the shoebox back on, shake it up for another five seconds, open it up. You only have 25 left after you take out all the ones with tails in it. So Because it's this probabilistic phenomenon, radioactive decay. Right. And the important part about this is that nothing changes the half-life of an element. Okay. You can't like heat it up or squeeze it a lot with under immense pressure. The half-life is well-established. So each element has its own half-life, right? The time it takes for half of the atoms that are present to decay. So uranium-238 decays by alpha decay into thorium-234. And it's got a half-life of 4.5 billion years. That first decay step. Yeah. Yes. Thorium-234 will decay by beta decay. So it's going to emit an electron from the nucleus. And it has a half-life of only 24.1 days. And that will change by thorium-234 changes into protactinium-234. No change in mass. All we'd lost is an electron, a very high-energy electron, right? So protactinium-234 changes also by beta decay back into uranium-234, back up to atomic number 92. So I have two more protons that I didn't have before because I went through two betas in a, in a row. Now, yeah. protactinium has a half-life of 1.17 minutes, okay? So uranium-234 decays by alpha into thorium-230, half-life 240,000 years. So we're back up to a long time now. We're back to a long half-life. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Thorium-230 goes alpha decay to radium-226. Now we're getting close, okay? Thorium-230 has a half-life of 77,000 years. And then here we go. The final step, radium-226, alpha decay changes into radon-222. And... Radium-226 has a half-life of 1,600 years, 1,600 years. Now we have radon-222 in your home. Okay, that's what we're talking about. It's a gas, and we'll talk about why that's important. And it's also important to note that that's also going to change down into other things all the way down to lead-206, right? 
but it has a half-life of 3.8 days. So it doesn't stay long. That's how you go. You asked me, and I had to do this, say the ultimate source, it starts with uranium-238. It's got all these steps in between, right? And so there's two important points here that we're sort of leading into. The first is if you've listened to Planet Geo or if you're familiar with what enriched uranium is, there's multiple types of uranium. Chris, you've been talking about 238 uranium, which is the key one for uh, producing radon, right? But there's 235 uranium as well out so there. So why aren't we concerned about that? It's a great question. Why are we not concerned about the radon? Because radon is in the decay chain of 235 uranium. Uranium-235 starts to decay. It breaks down all the way to lead. Somewhere in the middle is radon. The reason we don't care about it is because there's very little uranium-235 in the world today. Out of 138 atoms of uranium that you find, only one of them is going to be 235 uranium. The other 137 are going to be uranium-238. So the vast majority of uranium out there is 238 uranium. Now, the other reason we don't care about the 235 decay chain is because the half-life of radon in the 235 version of it, the 235 uranium flavor, has a half-life of 55 seconds. That's very short. So that is going to decay away very quickly. It's there and it's gone. It's there and it's gone, right? The half-life of 222 radon, which is the one in the 238 decay chain, has a half-life of, as you said, 3.8 days. Now that's long enough to matter for us. And why does this matter? Like, why do we care about the length of the half-life here for this radon step in the decay? Because it's long, it's there long enough for us to go down and inhale it because it's a gas. We can, we can ingest this into our system. So we have that. That's not good because it's radioactive. But then it also changes, it continues to change, you yes. know, and, and it's only a gas in radon. That's the only time that this whole decay series exists in the gas form. Okay. So now we're kind of shifting into the second part of this thing is the geology of radon. The are we ready to do radon, that? Right? Are we ready? I to think we are. Cause we're right. We're right on the cusp of it. I think here you nailed it. This is the only step in this whole 16 or 17 step decay chain where this uranium-238 atom has turned into a gas phase. So radon is the gas, which means it can move. All those other ones, thorium, radium, those don't move. Those elements are bound in whatever mineral or clay that the uranium existed in originally. As soon as it hits radon, it doesn't stick to anything. It does not chemically react, so it can move, it can flow in airspace. And that's how it gets into your basement, basically. So we kind of got to step back and talk about like where uranium occurs in, in geoscience, right? Cause like, like, okay, it, you know, radon's coming from uranium, but why is the uranium there? What's it existing in? Like, where does this start? How does uranium behave? Yeah. So now we get into the geology of this podcast. <laughs> okay. Here we yes. go. <laughs> here we <laughs> right. go. So Look, you're the expert on this, hands down. I bow to you on this, okay? But I'll I'll give it a go and you can interrupt me. All right. But okay. Uranium is fairly common in certain kinds of rocks on in the continental crust, okay? It's common in rocks like granite. It's common in certain sedimentary rocks. And it's therefore, it, when these rocks break down, then they form soil. 
chemically they'll break down, mechanically they'll break down, and it forms soil, what our homes are sitting in and on. Okay. All right. How did I do? I mean, it's perfect. Yeah. I think that's a really important point because, you know, radon is coming out of the soil. Most homes are built in soil. They're not built in bedrock or anything like that, right? Like our basements, if you have a basement, it's sitting in soil of some kind. That soil comes from weathering of a rock. It's breaking down a rock and there's uranium in the rock and therefore there's uranium in the soil, right? And the other aspect about soil is that it provides all these little air spaces so that when radon is formed, that radon can go into those air spaces and start to move around quite quickly. And so I think we need to touch on a couple of key geoscience terms here with regard to sediments, which is porosity and permeability. Chris, do you, you think it's time to talk about the, that now? Yeah, I do, because those things c- help control the mobility of radon. When it, once it hits that gas form, it can move. So if you are, are talking about a soil or a sedimentary rock that has a high porosity, what we're talking about simply is the spaces between the grains. Like your, you know, your skin is very porous. A sponge is very porous. Okay. It's the spaces between the, the other pieces, the solid pieces, right? It's the air. Okay. And we talk about porosity in a percent. So it's the percent of stuff that's not a mineral, basically. It's the percent Ooh, air. I, I can I can maybe give an analogy with this. If you take like a five gallon bucket of loose beach sand and fill it all the way up to the tippy top, right? All right. Well, what's the porosity of that? Well, you can measure the porosity by how much water can you pour into that bucket without changing the volume. Oh, that's a good one. Without the water spilling out of the top of the bucket. That's That's a good one. With loose sand, you pour the water in and you can, with a five gallon bucket full to the tippy top, you can put in about two and a half gallons of water. So (laughs) that water is pushing out the air, you know, you see it start to bubble as you pour water in. And what that means then is sand has a 50% ish porosity. Okay. 50% of the sand is just airspace. Okay. Well, if that's what you have, you got a soil that has a high porosity, a a lot of air in between the grains. That means then that radon can move through that easily. Right? So high porosity favors mobile radon. Yeah. And a different, but related term is permeability, which is the ability of stuff to flow through there. So it's the interconnectedness of all those pores. So you could imagine a mm-hmm. scenario, Chris, with your, let's go back to your bucket, sand in the bucket analogy, because that's a great one. That sand, if you just pour a bunch of sand grains in there and fill it up, that is very permeable because the water can flow all the way to the bottom of that bucket really easily. And if you put a screen on the sand and tip the bucket over, the water is going to flow out of there really easy. It's permeable. The water can flow. If instead you take... You, you fill up that bucket with a rock that has a big hole in the middle, a single hole that is a, a solid rock with just one big hole. You can still have 50% porosity. There can be one big pore that is two and a half gallons sitting right in the middle and you can fill that with water and tip it upside down. And it's never going to flow out of that rock enclosure. So think of like a big bubble of water locked in a rock capsule it's not going anywhere. Pour cement in there. Maybe let's make it a cement analogy, right? Like I had no idea where you were going with that analogy, by the way. Did I, it? Does it make sense was, or not? Was this a um, terrible analogy? Can, can, let me give another go at it and see what you like best. Can I do that? Yeah. You sure? I don't want to hurt your 
like sensitive soul here. I'm not feeling that sensitive this week. So I think Okay, good. good deal. Take another yeah. drink of wine and sit back and listen. <laughs> okay. I see okay. you. I see you. Let's see how it's I don't done. Watch one. the master. Is, I don't have anything. I don't know what's going on. This is I'm breaking a rule right now. I'm not I don't have a beer while we're recording. I'm just gonna sit back here and watch the master at work, Chris. That's what okay. I'm gonna do. Here we go. Five gallon bucket, dumped all the water in it I can. Okay. And you just got done running a half marathon. You are exhausted. You are, you're dehydrated and you are thirsty. Okay. But you got that five gallon bucket sitting right in front of you with sand and water in it. I give you a straw, say, have at it. You stab the straw in that sand and you just, you can drink it. No problem. No problem at all. Okay. Now next week, same thing, run a half marathon. I come chuckling up to you, you know, moseying on up. And I say, Hey, Jesse, how you doing? And you're like, Oh man, I'm so thirsty. And I hand you a lump of clay. Okay. Now this clay has all the water in it. You could watch. It's got gallons of water in the clay. Cause it's got a really high porosity. I hand you the lump of clay and I hand you a straw. You stab the straw into the clay and you go like that. Nothing's coming out because clay is really, really porous, but it is impermeable. It will not let the water go. Okay. How'd they do? Uh, what do you think? That's a better one. Uh, I'm, you like I'm, it? I'm, I'm, yep. I've learned a lesson here today. That's a better <laughs> oh, one. Please. Never, All right. never disagree with Chris Bullheis is the lesson I'm taking here. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> okay. So we, we, we've well, covered- Well, hold on now. But hold on. So if you take a rock that is really porous and really permeable, radon can move through that easily. Okay. Totally. So it can move through the soil, it can move through the sedimentary rock, and it can move then into your home very easily. Okay. That's the moral of the story, right? If you have rock that's really porous or soil that's really porous, but impermeable, then it's going to have a harder time seeping through that and getting into your house. So the geology is going to help determine what happens in your home. Yeah. So let's kind of come full circle here. We've got radon. It's uranium has 238 has decayed down to 222 radon. It's produced. It's a gas. It can move now. So we're talking about porosity and permeability because that radon has to move from the soil into your home in some way. And there's many ways for it to get into the home, but there's a time aspect to this. It does not have an infinite amount of time to move because remember, we only have 3.8 days. That's the half-life. So most of the radon that's that's produced today will be gone within about uh, 16 days or so. Around about six half-lives is kind of what we think of for the time scale of going from 100 to zero, basically. So that radon has to move quickly. So what it means is the source, the uranium source, has to be pretty close to your house if the radon's going to make it into the basement, or it has to be able to move really fast from further away. And so Radon's moving through the pores and the permeable rock layers and gets into your basement. But like, what other factors contribute to how fast radon moves into your house and therefore how far away from the uranium source matters? The other big thing is water. So if you have water that's sitting in the pore space, then water's going to slow down the mobility of the radon. So really, I mean, it's complicated and we're keep, we're trying our best here to keep this like simplified a little bit. Think about it. Three variables in radon mobility, porosity, gotta be porous, permeable. It has to be, you know, allow it to flow through it and dry. Not a lot of water in the pore space. If you have that, then you have the potential for very mobile 
radon gas. Okay. Now, can I, uh, one thing, what makes the radon so mobile is actually the decay process. And I think this is so cool and it's worth highlighting because I think <laughs> yes. it's something that everybody can relate to. It's All true. right. Analogy. A high powered rifle has a recoil on it, right? You pull the trigger and it recoils in back into your shoulder. Okay. The bullet is going the opposite direction. Well, that's exactly what happens with radon 222. When it becomes unstable and it ejects this alpha particle, that's the bullet. When the radium 226 decays into radon 222, it does so by emitting very forcefully an alpha particle. Which is the bullet in this analogy. That's right. right. And the radon 222 then is projected the opposite direction. And that's how it moves. That's isn't that cool? Like I just like that's it's, it's so on the move. Cool. And so, you know, there are people who model these things, who model these processes, and actually will create like a chemical model of uh, the bonding environment in an atom. So, you know, imagine a uranium atom sitting there and it's bonded to oxygens and silica atoms. When that thing undergoes alpha recoil, it blows a massive hole in the mineral. I mean, relative to the size of the uranium atom, like, you know. Many, many, like 10 or 20 bonds radius are broken in this crystal lattice. So basically this uranium decays to thorium and it breaks a big hole in it. Then that thorium goes to protactinium, uranium, uranium again decays to thorium. It blows another hole in it. It goes from thorium to radium, blows another hole, radium to radon. By the time we get to radon, there's one, two, three, four alpha decays. You have uh, fired a rifle into your shoulder four times. It could get a little bit sore at that point, right? Like the mineral structure is broken down. And why Why do we care about the structure, Chris? What do you mean? What, what, do, what do you mean? Radon needs a broken mineral to be able to get out of it. If uranium's locked in a mineral, a crystal lattice, it can't get out. So it needs like an interconnected pathway of broken crystal to actually get out of the crystal and into this pore space in the rock. So there's this rock structure rock scale and mineral scale and atomic scale processes are all linked together in creating radon in your home. It's very yeah, cool. So it is. That's how that recoil effect then of the decay process can propel the radon 222. That's now a very mobile gas. It can propel it through a porous permeable and relatively dry soil structure or rock that that's existing there and therefore move into your home. One of the things, Jesse, this is one of the things I love about doing this podcast with you is what you bring to the table is so different than the direction that I would have gone into. Like, you know, you've obviously read papers or, or you've been exposed to this process before where it's blasting a hole in the crystal structure. I'd never heard of that before. Like that's, I learned that then just now with the rest of the listeners by talking to you. Well, first of all, it's really fun. We both, uh, you know, building this script is very fun because we, we learn from each other. We take it very different pathways. It's very, very <laughs> fun do. to do this. Yeah. And sometimes we argue and sometimes we almost break up and then we get back together and, you know, it's all, <laughs> it's all very fun, but I'll, I'll, uh, I'll have to find this. I haven't seen it in a while, but there's a great animation that I think uh, would be really useful for teaching, teaching this kind of decay Well, process. I really want that animation. I'll send yeah, it to you. I, yeah, if absolutely. you can find that, I want to use that because I'll use that in my classes for sure. Yeah. Like I'm absolutely. always looking for stuff like that. So I think it's really all right. Cool. Well, we need to move on. Okay. So yep. we talked about the mobility. I think we're good. I, are you, you agree with that? Like, you know how? Yeah. Let's, 
I think let's transition to the house now. Let's focus on like, you know, the, the actual How's it point get in? getting it into your house, right? And this is something that astonished me. I didn't really know this. I mean, okay, many houses have foundations, old houses like the one we have foundation is a little bit cracked. It provides an easy way for air from the soil to make it into your basement, right? But you got this basement that's this gap, this ship well, in the ocean. Well, hold on. A lot like, of our listeners though don't have basements. Like that's kind of a Michigan thing, you know? That's true. And we have a lot in Pennsylvania as well. So it doesn't matter if you have a basement or not, but basements tend to be high radon locations just because radon's 222 mass units. It's pretty dense. So it'll kind of sink down. But I didn't know that most houses, especially new houses, draw only, well, less than 1% of their house air comes out of the soil. The rest is circulated through the atmosphere. In an old house with a cracked foundation, you can draw up to 20% of the air in your house from the soil. That astonished me. I did not For know me, I'm amazed that my house, which is pretty well built, that it would draw 1%. Like that would surprise me that it would draw 1%. Now, my old house... I had a Michigan basement. <laughs> like I actually had parts of my basement that was dirt. I'm telling you right now, I should have had that home measured for radon. Like I, some of the problems that I have right now, like maybe my mental status is because of <laughs> like, I lived in that house for about 20 years. I, I was sucking in some radon for sure. I guaranteed uh, yeah. that house was probably <laughs> inhaling 50%. Um, yeah, uh, the it's, air from the soil. It's an amazing number, right? Like how it much, is a lot. Yeah, how much it's soil crazy. air you can get into your house? I agree. One uh, percent seems like a lot, and then you talk about twenty percent. Oh my god, that's amazing. Well, amount. you know, like even if you don't have a basement, okay, you still have footings. You have a foundation that's dug into the soil. So either way, when a home is put in a place, a hole is dug, right? And especially this is compounded when you have a basement, all right? So you dig a hole and you build, you put the walls in and so on, you build the home, right? And then now you have this, this area that is what, two, three feet between your walls and the hole that's dug. They have to backfill it. Well, it never really fills in the way it was when you dug it out. You know, it's not going to be as compact. So now you have really increased the porosity and permeability of the, all that area surrounding your crawl space or your basement. That's a really good point. Then now all of that uranium that is near the wall that you, or the hole that you dug when it's near that now it has an avenue to travel through very porous and permeable, loose, unconsolidated fill. And now it's in your house. It's a great point. And the last way that these get into your house, even if you don't have a basement, is through water. Actually, radon can be dissolved in water. And then when you bring your water into your house, when you agitate that water, it's a gas. So the gas is released. So showers, any kind of pumps, sinks, running water that is agitating the water, the radon can escape from the water. However, this is usually going to be from people that have wells. Good point. Where it's not like a municipal water supply that gets tested and treated and things like that. So, which like I have. <laughs> so again, um, I've got a well and, uh, you know, that's a really interesting thing though. When you, you know, so this water has the radon in it and you agitate it by doing dishes and things like that. The radon now is in the air. Yeah. Sitting uh, in your hot oh, tub. That's true. Sitting in your hot tub. <laughs> <laughs> you got that right. Um, you got that. So, I, I, you know, this last part, I think now it's in our house and 
you know, we, we've kind of talked a little bit about why it's dangerous, but let's just talk. There's a little, a few sort of things to tidy up here about when radon gets into your house, right? First of all, it's heavy. It's 222 atomic mass units. Most of the air, most of the atmosphere is oxygen and nitrogen and carbon dioxide. These are all far lighter. So radon will sink, which means it can stagnate often in your basement. And so that's yeah. where people go to measure radon. And, and that's where sort of the risk is, is the lower levels of your house typically, because that radon will kind of sink down in your house. And it's hard to get out actually, because it's so heavy. So that's the point of it. The other aspect is that We've talked about this half-life thing. It's a short half-life. So if it gets into your house, first of all, it's not going anywhere. Second of all, it decays. And there's a whole bunch of decays that happen. Remember, radon is only one step down from uranium to lead. So there are between seven and 10 additional steps of decay, of radioactive decay. And of those, some of them are alpha particles before it becomes lead. And so basically, you know, once you have radon, you have a bunch of alpha decay going on this really energetic process. And then it ends in lead, which is not a great element to have around and to have in your lungs. And so, you know, the main risk is inhaling the radon and then it's in your lungs and it decays down and then it's lead and you got lead in your lungs. Um, so that's kind of the dangerous aspect of it. And this is why we need to get Okay. Tested. So what do you do though? Like, do you, is it just an air circulation, uh, solution? Yeah, it's actually mostly not an air circulation solution. It's mostly a preventing it from getting into your house. So the, the houses I've seen in, in Pennsylvania and the house we have here has what's called a passive radon system. So you could, basically what you need to do is you need to take a, a drill, a pipe. You talked about Chris, that boundary, that backfill boundary between the soil and your foundation. What you do is you basically put an air pipe down in there that sucks out the air from the area around your foundation. And so all it is, is taking that gas, that soil gas that would normally get into your house and it's just venting it up into the atmosphere. So that's all it is. And there's an active or passive system. Some of them have a fan attached to them, the active ones where it's actually pumping out the air. Ours is a passive system. And this is really kind of cool. All it does is just a pipe, a series of pipes that are, we have a basement. So it's a series of pipes running under our foundation that are taking the air out and it's passive. There's a, a pipe that goes up to the roof and whenever wind blows across that pipe, it creates low pressure and it sucks all that air out. And so any amount of wind is just sucking air out. It's, it's kind of cleansing the air around our foundation of radon, which is just a cool, very cool thing. Very simple. It is a very simple thing, but not if you didn't build the home with that in mind, which a lot of homes are not. What do you do then? these pipes are not huge and you don't need to go all the way under the foundation. Usually they can just wrap it around the, the foundation on the sides. So it's, it can, I don't know the, ex, how expensive it is to get these installed. Um, I think because the, like I said, the house we have, um, has it in place, had yeah. it in place already, but I think most modern homes will be built with this detection system or with this, um, radon prevention system in place to get it installed. I'm not sure what the price is, but it's not, ultra expensive, you know, something you need to get tested. I'm curious. For. How, how did you know you have it? You can see it in the walls outside and often it's running in ours. It's running inside the basement. Um, you can see some of the pipes running up. Oh, okay. You, so your basement's roof. unfinished then? Yeah. Basement's unfinished. Okay. Yep. All right. Gotcha. Okay. Yep. And there's a, there's a pipe, you know, running along the side of the house that uh, just a PVC pipe that goes up to the roof. And I'm like, oh, I wonder what that is. Oh, it's a radon system. Okay, cool. But where I'm at Pennsylvania is a pretty high radon risk area in general. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of 
carbonate rocks, which are high in uranium. And so therefore the soils are high in uranium and there's just high uranium background. Where you're at in Michigan, it's a little bit different. The soil isn't yeah. as high in uranium, but you have really dry soils. So I think that's why Michigan might be higher radon. I'm not um, sure. so my situation is unique and I think a lot of people are in the situation I'm in. Uh, we are in clay. Okay. Oh, and and right. so okay. I'm on top of a hill, but I'm, I'm in clay and so clay is impermeable, but it's very, very wet. So it, it, it has, it has the water that both of these things act to slow it down. However, if there's a lot of uranium on that whole wall that was dug, then you have access for it to get into your house. Um, yeah, so okay, that's a good point. There are a lot of people though in our area that are in sand. So we have these like, you know, ancient dune and sandy, you know, kind of deltaic uh, environments that homes are built in. And so they can have an increased problem because, you know, it has its porous, it's really permeable and it's relatively dry because sand has such great drainage. Yeah. And radon's just flying around through sand. So it's, it can just flow really quickly through it. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's important because this is a, uh, a geoscience topic that is immediately societally relevant, but also has health implications. I think we should point out, Chris, we'd be remiss if we didn't point out that places you can learn more and places you probably should learn more if you don't know uh, about your home. In the U.S. at least, the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, and the United States Geological Survey, the USGS, have maps and really actually great guides that can help homeowners. But it's a very local problem. Like houses in the same neighborhood have very different radon risk factors, basically, because some older homes, you know, depending on how your quality of your foundation, it really, a lot of things matter. So getting your own specific home tested is a pretty important thing. Most other countries, I know Canada has them, uh, Germany, the, the same sort of governmental agencies will have radon resources that, that people should look into. We'll put a couple links in the show notes, like the EPA um, radon map. We'll put that in the show notes and so on. So if you're interested, check it out. It's kind of fun to look at the radon risk map too of the, of the United States. These, they're, they're yeah, but you have to be careful of it though. That's true. By, like you said, I mean, you can have a neighborhood that's, you know, these you're in close proximity to the people and, and very, very different radon levels in the low levels of the house. That's a really good point. Yeah, it's it, it was sort of fun. I, I I looked at the U.S. map, and you know, you see the big color pl- splotches pasted all over the map, and then you zoom in on on Pennsylvania, which I did, and uh, you know, it it gets more detailed. Definitely, it gets more yeah. nuanced for sure <laughs> yeah. at the county yep, level and at the township level. So it, it's it's interesting to look at. Um, yeah. So. I thought this was fun, Chris, and I think we should, you know, these types of things where geoscience, there's an interesting geoscience story behind a really important process that everybody should sort of be aware of. That's right. That's right. That's what this is all about. Our amazing planet, how it all works. I know, and how it impacts our everyday lives. Right. It's so good. That's right. So no, good. you had a good idea. I, it took me a little bit, but once I started digging into it, I was sold. This was fun. I liked learning about it. We didn't it, so. almost break up over this episode. So no, we good. didn't. No. That's true. We're, no. we're becoming more collegial. That's right. All right, man. With that, I think that's a wrap. If you enjoy Planet Geo, share with your friends. That's by far the most important. Give us a like, subscribe. Those matter for the algorithm. And follow us on all the social medias. We're at Planet Geocast. That's right. Cheers. Cheers. See you next week. See ya.